0: What's for dinner tonight? That's a question I often ask myself in the past, which either led to an improvised cooking experiment or some expensive takeout order. Then HelloFresh came around. They deliver a box full of fresh ingredients and delicious recipes straight to my door. No minimum term, no obligations. I was able to choose my preferred meals on the website and within just a few days, I received the ingredients for these perfectly balanced dinners in just one box. It is so easy and it saves me time and money because I don't have to go grocery shopping or order takeout anymore. You won't believe how good it feels to come home after a long day at work, knowing dinner will be ready in just 30 minutes or less. With HelloFresh, there are no grocery lists, no planning meals ahead of time. Just pick out what they put in the box for you and start cooking. It's that simple. In my last box, I received Asian noodles with fresh vegetables and a delicious coconut curry sauce. All the ingredients arrived in just the right amount and sizes, and I thoroughly enjoyed cooking and preparing the meal with the easy-to-follow recipe. Why don't you give it a try yourself? Head over to hellofresh.ch and use the code HELLO SWISS for a total of a 95 Swiss franc discount distributed on your first four boxes.
1: Probably a lot of people think I made a huge amount of money with Mobile. That's not the case.
2: Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan.
0: Laurent, a very well welcome to the Swiss Pitter Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. You are the co founder of the moving company Movu and also the software company Holy Code. And currently, you're also the CEO at Bexio. What an impressive entrepreneurial CV, so to speak. Before we talk about these different ventures, we want to start with your personal background. You actually grew up with a strong minded grandpa, so to speak. <laughs> Who was adamant on you working for a big corporate so after university you actually did join ubs did you struggle to fit in there in the big corporate world
1: that's a nice start um yes that's true my grandpa was really adamant on finding a very secure job in a big corporate um, because that's the best way you know to have a, a job security for 40 50 years um Did I have trouble fitting in? I don't think so. I I would consider myself a very likable guy. (laughs) So people, I usually get along well with people. Um, I did have issues with authorities though. That's always been my problem. That's why I couldn't finish the military. Um, And I think in a structure like that, that shows. So yes, that didn't work out so well for me.
0: You even went that far that you said you called yourself unemployable. Is that probably also linked to the statement
1: that you just gave? Yes, most probably, yes. I mean... As I said, authorities have always been troubling me. So there's two ways that I can agree to listen to someone, I would say. Mm-hmm. One is that um, really on a personal level, we click and I, I feel a connection. Then I'm more than happy to listen to their advice or do whatever they say I need to do. Um, <laughs> and the other part is if I really feel that I can learn something from them, that is of value to me. Right. right. And if you're working in a, in a place where you're super happy with what you're doing um, and you really really passionate about it, then in yeah, I would say in most cases, you have someone as your leader, your boss, whatever that you can really learn from. But when I was working for UBS and also some other jobs that I had, it was not really my passion. So there were not that many things that I could learn from the people that that were leading me. And I think that leads to me being unemployable in a lot of setups, not all of them, but a lot of them.
0: And was there a certain point when he then realized, okay, I've learned what I could take away from from the corporate world. Now it's time to move somewhere else. Was there a certain moment or
1: something that happened? I wouldn't necessarily say it like that since I was fired in the financial crisis. So <laughs> my strategy at that point was still, okay, I'm going to become a banker because that's mm-hmm. what I'm supposed to. Um, but I did realize in a, in a few places where I did... Developed something that I felt was quite cool, um, that then was my boss, boss's boss uh, innovation that he was going around uh, in in the company. You know, and these sort of things where I felt like it's not the place that I want to be in, um, but it wasn't strong enough to drive me away at that point. So it really what changed was when I was fired um, because of financial crisis and the things that I learned there, and then really di- di- deep diving into the startup world. That's what changed my my mind, I think.
0: And being fired can also take you know a, a big sort of drawback on your ego so how do you handle the situation was it easy for you to say okay now i'm free or was it really something that also demotivated you and and was difficult to handle
1: i think you have to see the circumstances right so at that point i was like 22 or 23 years old something like that um I considered myself at the beginning of my career, which, yeah, I am or I was. So I felt like there's definitely other opportunities that are going to come my way. And looking around the team, there were all dads or, or um, uh, uh, mothers of, of small kids. So it was mm-hmm. very obvious to me that I'm the obvious choice to be fired if you need to, to reduce the team. Right. Um, so that made it not that hard. But on the other side, yeah, I mean, it's a shock. If you're getting into a room, you have no clue what's going on. There's a, there's a random person there and you're being fired. And from one one minute to the next, you're... At that point, my dream basically of becoming a banker is sort of put on hold or over, depending on on how you see it. So um, it helped me a lot to understand also for my future jobs, um, how to handle these situations because I was in it myself.
0: I can imagine. And then you actually switched to the startup world. You joined Dine mm-hmm. You built their online furniture shop, home and living from scratch, basically. Yes. And Dine is also listed as one of the mafia companies, the Swiss startup mafia map that we put together as a company that basically gave birth to many, many other companies, also Movo, of course. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder with your you know experience, you know, really working there at Dine what made the company so special that so many other companies were basically born out of that initial
1: company? That's a very good question. I think it's a twofold thing. One is, at that time, I don't think there were there was ever, or maybe at least not a lot of companies ever before that grew so quickly in Switzerland. I mean, mm-hmm. within two years or two and a half years, yeah, something like that, we went from zero to 250 people. That's not that often that you see that. So I think that... that brought in a, a group of people that were really looking for this hyper-growth ventures and learning and, and want to be there and, and, and work hard. So I think it just attracted a certain certain type of personality. That's mm-hmm. one part. Um, and the second part is, if you have so many people, right? It's a big company. Plus, there was a lot of turnover because either you you were up for the job or you were fired or you right. just realized for yourself that's not up, that's not for me to work that much. So I think in, in the five years of Dine Deal that were more or less re- relevant for this, I think there were like 500 to 800 people that were running through this company yeah. with a certain mindset. Not all of them, but most of them. So I think that's the main reason. So it it was like it was like a light that that you were attracted to to go and work there and sure. learn from. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, there were a lot of people um, that were going through that. And I think that's the main reason why a lot of them afterwards became entrepreneurs because that's really what they wanted to do.
0: Makes sense, and I also wonder, you know, what then led you to actually start your own company. So you went from banker to joining a startup to then actually starting your own company in 2014 with Movu. How was that transition happening? You know, who who motivated you? What what was the entrepreneurial spirit like that you then actually take took the leap and, and started your own company yourself?
1: Well, I think it's the main reason probably was that I didn't see myself fit in these structures anymore. Right. So as I said that UBS just wasn't my, my vibe somehow. Um, At deal it was more that I had a burnout, really. I, I stopped, I quit when I realized that I'm running into a burnout, but I did have a small burnout, not a big one, um, unfortunately. So that led to the conviction for me that I need to be my own boss, so to speak. Um, I need to be able to manage everything for me, for myself, I didn't know what exactly and how, but yeah, I mean, then uh, it just came along. It was a problem that I experienced firsthand and that's why I started.
0: But that's a very interesting take because people I could imagine who experienced a burnout could also say, starting my own company and having all that stress to deal with, that's probably the, the, <laughs> the last choice that I would make. So why was that the right uh, step for you with the small burnout that you had to then start your own company you then also had investors and everything, so that 's also just a, an additional stress level that you wouldn't necessarily have to deal with yeah,
1: I think you 're right, probably it was naive, you know, and I think a lot of people when they start companies they 're naive, and you have to be otherwise how are you yeah. going how are you going to deal with all that stress if you yeah. know up front the likelihood of you failing mm-hmm. um, the the amount of hours you 're working for probably not such a good salary, the stress level all of these things um if you would really know about that, I don't think a lot of people would you even do start. It. Yeah. So you have to be somewhat naive and also very enduring to get through that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's probably not the logical thing to do when you had the burnout to then uh, a bit later start your own company again.
0: Yeah. Did he take any break in between to also recover and, and recharge, or oh, yes. was really okay? Mm-hmm. What What did he do there?
1: I did my master's degree. So the first semester I was basically. I did go to most of the lectures if they started after 10 in the morning. <laughs> um, yeah, I just had to, to sleep a lot. And, of course. Um, I, I was not able to focus too strongly. In the in the very beginning, I couldn't even, if I had a lunch meeting with someone after 20 minutes, I had to go home because I just couldn't take it anymore. I was so tired and walking home took me 20 minutes instead of five and then I just had to go to sleep. But, you know, the, the master's degree that really helped me over one and a half years to have a bit of time to to do some stuff besides and, and, and recharge um, mm-hmm. and re-energize and also really focus on what I want to do. Did you also get any
0: outside help, any professional help to
1: to handle the whole situation? No, and I think that was stupid. Um, and that's something I see, especially in Switzerland, a lot that we tend to be very protective mm-hmm. um, around these, let's say, mental health issues or in general uh, challenges that you're facing, Right if you look to the us i think everybody has i think they call it a shrink right so they they all have someone a coach a psychologist whatever that they that they use to help them get through the challenges and in switzerland that's really i don't think a lot of people use that too much and you're not talking about it so i I think the amount of people that know that i had a burnout was really small my inner circle knew Mm -hmm. around that nobody and looking back that was stupid i should have really um taken up professional health and i did um, a lot in the later stages of, of, of my career, so to say.
0: Nice. I'm sure we're going to talk about that. And I think it's you set the perfect example as a role model to openly talk about it on the podcast that hopefully people who might experience a similar situation say, okay, I'm going to get help because it's okay to not be okay, but it's also okay to get help along yeah. the journey. Yeah, and
1: I think you really need to. That's super important. Be aware that the consequences of not getting help are much, much, much more um, uh, detrimental in a way mm. than actually getting the help and finding your way out of it. Absolutely. So let's talk about Movu. The early
0: days, you co-founded Movu with two other co-founders with Nicola and Nenad. Mm-hmm. Where do you actually meet your co-founders? As you said, the mafia. So makes a lot of sense. Yeah,
1: I mean, Nicola was, I think he was the head of sales at Tyndale at that time. Um, Nenad was rebuilding the platform. Um, for Deal and was responsible for the for the home and living shop as well. Um, so that's where we met, um, but we didn't have any contact in between Deal and when we started Movu. So mm-hmm. it was a lucky coincidence that actually Dario, one of the founders, brought us back together because I called him about Movu and he said, "I know another guy from uh, from Deal that is also working on something like that," and that was Nicola, mm-hmm. um, and that's how the two of us uh, found together basically.
0: Amazing, the the perfect mafia story. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and how did the idea of moving actually come about? I think you had a pretty frustrating experience with your parents, so please talk a bit about yeah, that. Yeah, sure.
1: I mean, that was the time when I was still studying, right, in the master's degree, and I was living in the city. My parents were living a bit outside, and then I, I think my mom was it that called me and said, hey, we're moving the house now, so uh, there's a few companies coming coming by. Can you please show up and show them around the house? Because we're working. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, 25, and I'm still doing my parents' job or whatever. Um, so I went there, and I sh- uh, the, those uh, moving company people came. They I showed them around the house. They were really nice. They looked at everything. Took quite some time to do that, right? So I think sure. in total it was like three hours that oh, I spent well, with, with yeah. the different companies. Mm-hmm. Um, then it took like two or three weeks until we got a quote. Like uh, that's on, a two, long time. Yeah, it's 2014. Yeah. It's not 1980. <laughs> um, and the quotes were quite high in my opinion. But what yeah. did I know? Um, So then my parents chose one of them, Um, they came, they showed up for the move, and we realized they needed about five people more, Uh, so we had to help until like 10 or 11 in the evening. They were super nice, they did everything qualitatively right, Mm -hmm. but the whole process, in my opinion, was super flawed. Why do you need to do a home visit for a super expensive offer, and then still you have misjudged it by that much? So that just, to me, it didn't make any sense, so I started digging. And what did he do then? Where did he do the digging? Yeah, I started uh, internet, obviously. Like I started looking at um, what's the moving market? Um, what's the size of it in Switzerland? What's the size of it in Europe? Um, how is it structured? Are there uh, big companies? Is it is it geographically very localized? Um, um, are there any digital brands already? Because obviously at that time, digitalization was, was more in their early days as it is today. Right. Um, so I started really looking into that and started seeing that I think there's really a place for a big brand that can cover um, the digitalization of this process um, and really streamline a lot of the processes in this industry. Um, but yeah, obviously, that's always when you do the first research, that's what you think. Oh, that's genius! Yeah, and then course. when you get into it, yeah, it looks a bit different. And you know, often we also talk
0: about the timing. So you had the frustrating personal experience. Mm-hmm. Was there any, you know, also shift in the market happening, or any other development that basically led to the conclusion? Hey the timing here in 2014 is actually just perfect to launch mobile was there any of that
1: sort I didn't think much about the timing in that sense right so yeah. i only what i saw is they're all all of those companies were well that's that's very um yeah that's a very st- strong statement to say all of them but i would say a lot of them were really non-digitalized at mm-hmm. all so th- there was no they didn't even have websites and if yeah. they had they were really bad so i felt like look that's happening across the whole board. every company in every in every industry will need to digitize, so I think that's a window of opportunity um and that proved to be right, but I didn't do much analysis on that
0: fair point also the being a bit naive here probably also helped you to get started
1: yes i mean i have i have let's say, a tendency to be some sort of an activist. So I always want to start doing stuff rather than really looking into it. And in the (laughs) early days, that really helps you a lot. The bigger a company grows, the the, the worse that actually gets. So I think if the company has a certain size, that's not your job anymore as a founder or CEO.
0: And also, please walk us a bit through the business model. So
1: how do you actually make money with Movo? How did the business model work? It's Basically, it's a, a classic marketplace. So yeah to use a this st- stupid analogy it was like the moving uh, at yeah, the 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 booking.com of the moving industry so yeah. to speak right so you try to get um people on the on the marketplace to get the quotes you try to get the moving companies um, on the marketplace to actually give the quotes mm-hmm. and then you take a fee on each uh, booking that is being made through that how That's- how high was that fee if you're allowed to say uh sure i mean it's i think it's very transparent in our terms and conditions so we started with I think 15, 13.5%, mm-hmm. then we opted to 15, then we opted to 17.36. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> I don't, uh, some VAT calculation, and then that's what we ended up with well, for whatever reason. Um, and then a bit more, but I think in the end, it was somewhere around 20% that okay. we're taking.
0: Fair point. And you know, that's also the classic platform model, right? So you, you do have to bring both sides onto the Platform to the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And usually there is one side that you do focus on. That's basically a big learning from the Uber uh, case. Mm-hmm. So, did you also have that strong side that you say, that's what we focus on
1: because the other side will then follow or will be easier to acquire? It's always a bit the chicken and egg problem, right? So, right. which side do you need to focus on um, or which side do you need more? Um, for myself, I found that, uh, let's say, over a period of at least a year or more, Usually, you will have more issues um, attracting the side of, of the model that actually brings the money. So, the one that is, in the end, going to pay in hard cash, right? Mm. That's the side that is harder to attract. Um, in my opinion, and could be that in some cases, it's really not the case, but for us, it was like that. So, yes, in the first couple of days, it was rather easy with with. Google ads, etc., to find the first users that come to the page. And it was not so easy to convince the moving companies to do a quote without having seen the place physically. So mm-hmm. in the very early days, it was a struggle to get the companies on. But as soon as the first companies were on and they were starting to create revenue and what the companies started knowing, we never had issues again with getting companies on. So we had a huge waiting list of moving companies that wanted to join the marketplace. And the problem then is really the scaling of the site that is going to bring the money.
0: Got it. And why did he actively decide against charging the user, so the people that would actually use your service? Because you would also solve a pain point for them, right? By having the quote faster than waiting for three weeks and maybe not even having someone to come to your apartment and and look at everything. So why did he not
1: charge the user? That's something we we had a lot of discussions around. And I think in this specific market of moving, it just has to do with competitive pressure, right? So Mm -hmm. It is fantastic to go to a platform, have five offers from qualitative providers and just look at them and book it with a click. But it's also not that hard to pick up the phone and just get one additional company to send you in a quote, right? So you're always in a very, um, very strong price competition. Uh, and because of that we decided not to artificially increase the pr- price points of our providers by charging for our fee on top obviously that in the mm-hmm. end would be great um, i think the most successful marketplaces do that they can they can charge both sides of the transaction in the right. end and um, we tried or actually we did that quite successfully by adding additional things so for example Um, and that you have um, uh, coupons for furniture in in big companies like Ikea and these sort of things, where we then had a kickback in these sort of of deals. That helped us a lot, but it was not on the initial transaction. We really tried to have a value-added approach around that. And at
0: at a certain point in time, you actually even thought about launching your own subscription service. Mm. Today, there's a completely different startup doing that. So please also elaborate a bit what your thoughts were back then.
1: Yeah, that's painful for me still. I mean, A lot of people ask me what was the biggest mistake that you did at movu and i think there's two one is personal like um not having seen that uh, one or two employees of ours were going towards a burnout um but yeah i can talk about that later if you want um and the second really big one as well was i knew from day one that we wanted to have a subscription model around cleaning and we always said don't defocus stay on the moving part right Mm -hmm. And by the time we did start looking into this subscription model for cleaning, it was too late because Batmate was just killing the market. I mean, those guys have been doing an amazing job. I know them well by now. Uh, congrats to them. But for us, it was painful because they were cutting out, at, let's say, at least fifty percent of what we what we were aiming for at that time. So,
0: yeah. And and why is that still so annoying for you? Do you think you have built a much bigger company or sure. okay? Yeah. So that's the the aspiration, the missed chance, so to speak. Yeah,
1: I mean, I'm super happy with where we got Mobile, right? Absolutely. Um, and it's a great company, and, and I love the people that work there. Um, but there was more there on the cards, and oh. I just hate missed opportunities. <laughs> I hate them.
0: I understand that. And let's also continue talking about some challenges. So you also have an early co-founder split. So... Nina was actually not your uh, initial co-founder it was someone else the CTO and then he decided to part ways. so first of all what happened there and how did you successfully execute that without
1: putting the company in danger I think there I have to say really big props to Dalio um, who was our first uh, Dalio the Dine Deal founder who was our first investor in, um, and uh, to Nicola because when I realized after two months or when both of us um, the CTO and I realized after two months that we're just not going to get this done together Um mm-hmm. The way that the two of us, but also the way that Nicola and Dario helped us to figure out the situation um, and really say, "Okay, let's split it. Who will want to? Who who wants to continue this company? Who's going to go out? How do we make it fair and even? And how do we find someone that is taking over this role?" They did an amazing job. I mean, I did know Nenad, but he wasn't on my list because I just I didn't think of him. But Dario really said, "That's the guy." We sat together and instantly we clicked. So that was, I think, that was probably the most important. Moment to the success of Mm Movu, figuring out this situation and having a a killer CTO like Nenot joining the team.
0: Yeah, because usually, even a co founder split, that can completely kill your company, right? Yes. What were the signs? How did that feel like when you realized, hey, it's not going to work out with the initial co founder? What were the things that you went through together?
1: Yeah, I mean, the classic things as, let's say, non experienced founders, right? Lots of loud arguments. Lots of times when you hang up the phone and you feel like we just didn't get to a a basis together, Mm -hmm. Um, having the feeling that I was talking too much about his parts and he was talking too much about my parts, you know, really not having clear roles, both not being happy with the roles that they had. There was just too many signs showing that this was a broken relationship.
0: Right. And it would also have been pretty easy to just say, hey, it's not working out. I'm going to quit and walk away. What kept you going?
1: I think that's probably the ego part that you didn't have, okay. right? That you really say, "Hey, I, I just started on this. I have cool co-founders, and um, we need to get through this." I think you need need a bit of that. You need something that really pushes you to endure all of these moments, because mm-hmm. there's so many places that you could give up on a startup journey.
0: Absolutely. And you then also mentioned Nicola and and uh, Dario, who actually helped you to find a fair solution. How did that fair solution look like? Because. You probably didn't have the money to to pay out uh, the existing co-founder. Um, how you, did did he find a fair solution? How did that look like?
1: Um, I'm not sure what it says in my contracts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was a bit of everything. So the CTO that went out agreed to assigning some of his shares to the new CTO um, because they also knew each other. That made it easier. Mm-hmm. Um, we did buy out the part of his shares at an okay ratio. I could have never done that, but because we had people like Dario there right. that really believed in it, it was possible. And with that, we found um, yeah, an intermediary solution that he was still sort of happy, even though he left, um, but he left. So it was not the goal that he's perfectly happy, right? Um, yeah. it's, it's rather that the guys that stay and really do the work, they need to be happy. And I think the solution we found was, was really good.
0: Nice. So it's a mix of uh, different options, basically. Yes. Another challenge that you mentioned to us in the prep call was, of course, the stress of cash flow, of money management. So there were about four cases or four times where you almost went bankrupt. What happened there and how do you get out of that?
1: I think we were bankrupt. Um, in German, you say Bilanzdeponion, right? So yeah, right. we would have had to really hand in our balance sheet at that point. Um, but it was never a situation where we didn't know where to get the money from. It was really the investment round was just hinging on a few yeses or no's and we needed to find a way to go through. So those were really, really stressful times because, you know, at the beginning I was like 26 maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first people on my team, they all had kids. I mean, they were just crazy people. They said, I'm going to go take this risk, not have a good salary, but I have shares. I'm going to go for it. Um, and sitting down on, at the table with them and telling them, look, Currently, we only have money to pay you this salary and then we're done. So you need to either um, decide to work for free in the worst case, because I cannot pay you out. Um, Mm -hmm. We will be in trouble Um, or go and find another job. It's up to you. I completely understand if you want to leave the company. I hope you stay, but I'm not going to make any pressure. You have a family, you have kids. I cannot take this responsibility. I can only tell yeah, you course. what it is and you need to figure it out. And that was really hard because for those people, that was also, you know, they had to go home, talk to their husbands or wives and and, and figure it out. And yeah, luckily for all of us, it worked out four times. And most of the time it worked out because we had amazing investors that, um, We're then just saying, okay, I believe the round is going to close anyway, so I'm Mm going to give you a loan for the next two months. But, you know, I mean, if you give a loan to a company that is already in debt, chances that you're going to see this money again, very slim. So those guys were brilliant. They really helped us a lot. Um, And obviously the team that had the courage to really do this. Mm -hmm.
0: How did that make you feel on a personal level? I I can imagine that's an immense level of stress that you go through. So did you have sleepless night? Did you like... What, what did that feel like? Can you talk us through these days?
1: You know, my days were usually 13 hours. So I got up around, let's say, seven thirty, seven forty-five. took a shower, went out the house, was in the office around eight. So yeah, I was always really quick in the in the morning. Um, and from then to dinner time, I was just working. So let's say seven in the evening. Then I quickly did a break for an hour. Maybe I did some sports. Um two or three times a week most of the time i didn't have time i just had dinner while having dinner i was on the phone with my board um, members talking to them every day Mm -hmm. figuring out the problems and then i worked until late at at night and that made me usually so exhausted that i didn't have room to have sleepless nights my battery was just empty so i just went to bed right um but yeah, yeah especially in those in those phases there were a few nights where i basically didn't sleep And, you know, you also
0: mentioned the legal obligation. Like, technically, you would have had to do the bilanz deponierung and just stop the operations. Why didn't you do that? I mean, is that also the ego that you mentioned that you just don't want to fail, that kept you going relentlessly? Or why didn't you do that? And how did that make you feel that there might
1: be a legal obligation that you're not paying full attention to? In in those situations, it was really the belief that it's going to work out. Because I, I knew that we had... Investors really close to saying yes or to signing, and I knew that I had some people in the board that were really good at helping me convince those people. So I just had full trust that we can do it, and um, the board relied partly on my uh, on the way that I thought uh, about these situations, that I was mm-hmm. positive about it, and I partly relied on them knowing <laughs> better right. than me whether it's going to work out or not. So <laughs> yeah, in the end, it's it, it was naive, um, and we were aware of the consequences that then privately we would have had to. Yeah, closed those, uh, the the gap of financials right. and the social security payments and these things. And we were aware of it, but we just couldn't. At that time, we really believed it would be wrong to give up.
0: Yeah, and you were proven right in the end. I also wonder, you know, you then also had, of course, the, the other challenges where you actually had too much money offered. So it was not only about being bankrupt as a startup. You can also go very quickly to the other side. And that was, in your case, the Series B. There you had two insurances that wanted to invest uh, in Movu, and you said no to both of them. Yes. You basically said no to
1: a lot of money. Yeah. So I would not, as you said, I would not call it having too much money. What I would call it is for strategic reasons, believing it's not the right money. Um, But I think looking back, it worked out tremendously well, but I think it was also a bit of a also, again, a bit naive, maybe a bit of an arrogant move as a board and a CEO and founder to decide together that we're not going to go for that because what we thought back then is these insurance companies are going to buy this company one day. Mm-hmm. And if you get them in now, all the other insurance companies will not become a potential buyer because there's somebody that is in the pole position, right? right. Um, so we said, hey, even though they would give both of them would give us quite a good amount to keep growing, Let's do a much smaller internal round and, mm-hmm. and and hustle for ourselves. Um and that just about worked out because the internal round was so much smaller um that we, we were really optimistic that with that money we could reach our goals. But usually it always takes a bit longer and, and it's yeah. a bit more tricky. And there was just no room for a series C in Switzerland, you know, mm-hmm. at, at growth that we had, which was good, but with the limited market size of Switzerland and not looking into Germany, there was no way that we could go and get a good Series C at that point. So it was really after this investment round, you need to either have an exit or you need to be completely profitable and do it by yourself. And um, it just worked out, but that was risky. I mean, that takes a lot of guts to take that decision, and say no to to
0: the money uh, and to say, doesn't make strategic sense we're just going to do it ourselves and and follow our path how did that make you feel i could imagine that's also then an increased pressure and stress level on, on top of what you already experienced
1: Yes, that's one part. So you have a lot more stress because you feel like, what, is that chance ever going to come back? We just right. said no to two potential buyers. How stupid are we? You know, that sort of, <laughs> yeah. the, but that's the fear-driven one, right? And mm-hmm. I always try not to listen to the fear too much, even though you have to let it come up and yeah. really look at the more, the love side, like the positive side of things. Why did you do it? What, what do you think you're capable of achieving together? Um, where is this path going to lead you if you execute it as well? So we we really try to focus on that part and yeah the results showed.
0: Absolutely. And I also wonder, now we heard about the Series B investment where you said no to the insurances, but also the four times bankrupt Mm. moments, basically. What role did the traction, the growth that you had play to really also give you the the confidence that, okay, this will actually work out. We have a a really good case. So what role did these numbers and the users and the revenue uh, play in, in these decisions?
1: Yeah, that's massive. I mean, in the end, I think we never had a time except for the low seasonality quarter four. Um, we never had a time where we were not growing strongly quor- um, quarter by quarter, right? Um, so that obviously enhances your belief. But on the other side, you have to see if you have venture capitalists in your company and you're not growing strongly quarter by yeah. quarter, you're probably not at that company for much longer um, because that's just basically how the game goes. If you have um, VC money in, growth is all they care about. Yeah. And what were your growth
0: numbers like, like how much percentage growth did he have month by month or quarter by
1: quarter? So in the beginning, in the first couple of quarters, it was surely somewhere between 50 and 100 percent, depending yeah. on the quarters, et cetera. Um, when we got to a bit of mat- more mature setup and you could really start feeling that the Swiss market is becoming a bit right tight, um, it started slowing down a bit, um, but it was still always quarter to quarter was above 20 percent. Nice. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, very strong numbers. Yeah.
0: You also mentioned the burnout that you had yourself, but there was also the second biggest mistake that you mentioned was mm-hmm. that there are key employees. I think there were two of them that really came super close to a burnout. So what happened there?
1: So I think, as you said, it, that that was my first or my most painful biggest mistake. Um, I had one very close friend of mine and, uh, and uh, an important employee that had a burnout and two that came very close to it. Um, So the two that came very close, I'm super happy that we could turn that around and that they're doing an amazing job still and super successful and everything worked out well. Um, But the the really painful part is that, yeah, my close friend, I I didn't see it coming early enough. And by the time I did, it was too late. Um, And that is, you know, having experienced it yourself. Yeah, that's something I, I probably cannot forgive myself for still. One day I can, but today I still cannot because I feel responsible for it. Sure, it's in the end, the person itself. But, you know, the same way that when I had a burnout um, or still think about it today, when about my burnout. I'm also a bit mad at my bosses at that time that had a responsibility to see these things because I was young, energetic and just didn't know what I'm what I'm doing. Right. Right. And I felt the same responsibility and I failed. Um, So, yeah, I'm. I'm really, really hoping that that's something that people think more about, um, that yeah, capital gains at the expense of personalities or people, is never worth it.
2: Before we continue with the show, we would like to introduce you to our new partner, Nuco. Nuco helps founders navigate the paperwork that starting a company involves. From the first consultation all the way to the commercial register, Newco has helped more than 900 entrepreneurs start their company and they do so at highly competitive prices. To find out more, visit newco.ch/swisspreneur. Again, that's newco.ch/swisspreneur. And now, on with the show.
0: What were some warning signals that you probably didn't see back then that you would completely that, that would completely alarm you today?
1: Tiredness, um hours getting longer, um but the productivity actually not showing the, the necessary results, yeah. um nervousness, angriness, all of these, these things, just changes in behavior to the negative mm-hmm. um that you need to be aware of. And we did see it at some point, and I thought what I did was was a great idea hindsight it was stupid so we took away some responsibility from the person saying hey please only focus on this make sure you get that right and then we can go back to giving you more responsibility again but what that actually did to to him or her was that he wanted to prove even more that he can do it so it just increased the pressure and for some other people that might have been the right solution but i just didn't realize that for him that was completely the wrong direction to go so then it was too late is there any
0: recipe or any sort of tip that you can give to people to avoid these situations and really pay attention to potential burnout signals early and also take better
1: care of the employees that they are fully responsible for? I think it's really important that you have honest frank one-to-one sessions every one to three weeks, whatever, yeah. where you talk about these things and you realize how is a person doing? Are they starting to forget th- certain things? Do they feel like they're at close to the top um mm. what's their energy level make sure that they take long breaks like long holidays um and that they're really shut off they are not checking slack email whatever um but it's not that's not the, the perfect recipe i think when you realize something's wrong professional help is the only way
0: No. how do you do that today i mean you also experience the burnout yourself what did you do and change today um, to really stay far away from a burnout and really take good care of yourself?
1: So for myself, it's a mixture of rigorous planning. So mm-hmm. I've learned over the last seven years how much more work I can put into a day, a week, a month. Um, I plan my days accordingly. I have my sports breaks. I have my family breaks. I have my weekends where I, I just don't work on weekends anymore. That's that's the best solution for me to really stay healthy um, but it comes in waves you can plan as much as you want if you're if you're, I don't know a, a manager or an entrepreneur things always come in waves so there's more, more tricky periods and easier periods and I think it's super important that in the easier periods you really use them to recharge because in the tricky periods there's not much you can do because right. sh- shit just has to be done
0: that's also a very interesting take there's a, a quote from Naval Ravikant that comes to mind where he says We are just not made to work you know seven eight hours a day also the work here and also creativity actually comes in waves so when it's time to attack to close a deal to go to for the next fundraising round that's where you really have to go full speed all in because you're also intrinsically motivated but when it's not that case not that time then you should just lay around basically and recharge and take care of yourself so that's very much the model but how do you actually do that in practice because that's just so far away from the way that our world
1: works today and how we are set up in terms of working for someone in a company. You're absolutely right. And I think that's also a bit my own problem, right? I, there's this one sentence that I always have in the back of my mind. If you get 1% better every day, that's 37 times better a year. And I mean, that's massive, right? Yeah. So if you have that mindset on the low days... You're always inclined to say, these are the days that you're going to make the yeah, change, you know, now you have to really go for it. But that's just not the case. And I, I'm big in sports, uh, big into sports. So I really, I really learned more about that. Uh, let's say the relaxation parts, the pauses, that's yeah. where you also make a big difference. Right. And I, I mean, that mindset you just have to put into the business world. You need to have the courage to realize that in the tough times you need to go hard and in yeah. the soft times or in the slow times, you need to go slow. Don't push yourself over the <laughs> limits in the times when there's when there needs to be a break.
0: Yeah, I, I love hitting the gym, and there's also if you hit the gym, the muscles actually don't grow while you're hitting the gym; they grow during the recovery phase. Yeah. So I think that's yeah, uh, it shows. <laughs> no, but I think it's exactly the same analogy that the rest is so important. And don't underestimate the importance of it. Yeah. So despite all the challenges that we talked about, you then successfully managed to sell Movu. You had a nice exit there. Movo got acquired by the insurance company. Mm-hmm. As you basically said, it's going to happen. Uh, the insurance company, Balwa. So I just wonder, how did the deal happen? Please walk us through the deal and the acquisition.
1: I mean, I cannot disclose everything, obviously, but um, some parts. So I think it was the end of 2016 when Helvetia acquired Moneypark. And I, I remember that vividly. I woke up in the morning and, um, yeah, turned off the alarm clock, looked at my phone, and I saw this message: "Helvetia bought Money Park," and my my pulse was at 180. And I just <laughs> called my co-founders and saying, "Guys, now it's our time. This is our chance." And they're like, "What? What are you talking about?" And I was like, "If." Mobile bought scouts. Now Helvetia bought money park. Now all the insurances will go crazy. They need they need some investments there, right? That that was just my belief. Sure. And then um, on the same day I called Helvetia and I said, let's talk about a deal. Um uh, and then my board said, Okay, but if you want to talk to Helvetia, let's also talk to the others, which makes sense because Absolutely. you want to have a bidder's war, basically. Yeah. So we created a short list um, of companies that might be interesting. We took in an MA advisor, GCA Alcium. Um, that was um, Alex Grunwald um, who was really helpful Um and together we just talked to these companies he was playing the bad guy um, that's his role we were playing the good guys because in the end if you sell the company you're there to stay exactly. so you better not be the <laughs> bad guy in the game <laughs> so you need an external bad guy Um and then we just started road showing basically for a few weeks the harsh part about that was that my board decided that I'm not allowed to tell the, the company um because it would distract them so you know, uh, uh, besides having a 12 hours workday overnight, I needed to do all of these things, go to the meetings, prepare the due diligence. And at some point I couldn't take it anymore. So I included a, a small circle of people and just said, mm-hmm. I need your help. I cannot do it without you. Um, and that really showed. So I think the, the due diligence documentation that we had was fantastic because of GSA Altium, but also because of the internal people that worked on it. Um, and then there were a few companies that were super interested and uh, we had a structured process so until let's say i think it was mid-february they all had to hand in an initial offer and then we were you know we were really getting nervous start waiting on these offers and then the first offer came in at i think three million were like what that's so low (laughs) that's we cannot did we did we do something wrong you know we got really we got nervous and then the next one came in at i think seven or eight and then the next one came in so i stopped with numbers now a bit higher and a bit higher and a bit higher and then um, we were at a valuation where us as founders who never sold the company we thought like we need to hit it now we and need to that, pull the trigger yeah, we need to pull the trigger that's <laughs> it we cannot we cannot wait anymore you know that's money for us that's the first yeah, time in our course. lives we can make money really yeah. so we were getting a bit nervous but then our um gca said no tell them no uh, because there's all the corporates in the background that that they belong to they will come back with a higher offer and we we're like are you kidding us? We should say no to this. Are you are you stupid? He's like, guys, trust me. I've done this before, yeah. and I think that was the single most important thing that they did for us, right? Um, because it almost doubled the valuation afterwards. Um, wow. Um, for investors, the yeah, people that stayed on, right? Um, we had we were able to sell a bit of it, but the rest of it was in an earnout, and we were st- um, we ha- um, we stayed around for quite a few years, um, and it was yeah, the earnout is then more based on performance of the company afterwards so we did not hit the same valuation as the investors but we still had an okay valuation
0: nice i know you're not allowed to talk about the numbers but can you give us a range like uh, was it above or below 20 million
1: yeah i mean there's you can read it up on the internet there's some people estimating it and that's i think they had it quite right not exactly but so it was above um, that number, but you can read it up on the internet. Okay,
0: so everybody who's interested in the exact price, go and Google it, yeah. or the close estimate, let's <laughs> put it that way. You then actually also decided to stay on at Balwas so as part of the acquisition. It's usually uh, that mm-hmm. you do have the earnout, mm-hmm. So why did he decide to to do that of course there's also the money part but there was also something else because you don't seem to be just purely motivated by money
1: no you're right money is a driver I like it but it's it's an an extrinsic one so in the end it's not what really drives you right um or me at least so for me it was more like Movo was my baby I invested so much time into this company and um, I really I, to this day I believe we have a fantastic team um with another setup or another business model like the uh, the recurring cleaning one i think we could have created a huge company but we still created a very good company and i just wanted to make sure that this company doesn't fail you know in an integration in a big corporate that mm-hmm. they don't get um, that they don't get uh, diluted in their culture or these sort of things so yeah that's why i stayed on to help the integration
0: nice and then eventually you also then reach the point and the conclusion that okay integration is done now it's time to to move on what changed there or what led you to that conclusion
1: i do a reflection for myself once a year where it's always the same day it's actually the date um the birthday of my mother it's the day that we founded Movu, and it's the day that um uh uh, my girlfriend or now wife and i came together so it's a lucky day for me nice um so that's actually the day before because on that day then obviously usually we have birthday parties and these things but the day before i take to myself and i really think about what did i want to achieve this year um did i do it do i want to do i want to continue like that what is my what are my goals for the next year and there it really showed for myself that I'm probably only able to give 95% of myself into Movo, um mm-hmm. at this stage going forward. So I informed my board and I said, look, guys, I'm happy with what I'm doing and I have a family now, so it's, it's kind of nice to not have to work 80, 80 hours a week and these sort of things, um, but I feel there's other people that will be willing to give these 5% that I think the company needs to hit the next level. Um, so we started the search. And was that a difficult decision for you or was it super clear due to the reflection? I knew that it's going to come one day. I was a right. bit surprised that it came after seven years. I thought it's probably going to be eight, nine or 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the moment was a bit surprising, but uh, it was, to me, it was clear that it's going to come.
0: And how does that reflection look like? What What do you do during that day? Um, do you like write a journal or how do you reflect on, on your goals and, and priorities?
1: So I have, I have five goals that I always write down um, that I put away. Um, and then on that day I take them out and I see, um, did I reach them? That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. So there's always a business, a personal, a friendship, um, a health, etc. So there's I five see. goals, um, that I look at and I usually don't reach all of them, but the bigger majority of them. Right. Um, and then from there I look at, okay, what could I have done better in this year? And then I, maybe I go through the calendar really like week by week to look right. at what I didn't, what I didn't do. Um, I try to think of the things that really influenced me that year, positively, negatively. Then um, From there, maybe I do a meditation. Um, mm. That depends really on, on how I feel and, and where I am um, at that day. Um, and then that's the morning, right? Then I take a lunch break, um, go for a walk or whatever, just to try and, and get my head um, cleared out. Nice. And then in the afternoon, I really sit down and I plan my year. And, and I mean, there's, there's this YouTube videos of, I think it's a professor that always says, put, put the, big, um, the big balls in a jar first and then the smaller ones, exactly. right? And yeah. It's exactly that what I'm doing. I'm really trying to figure out what are the big goals that I'm going to go for this year that are really motivating me, that are really driving me forward. Um, and then from there, I'm trying to yeah, solve some of the other parts and the smaller balls. They're just going to happen um, week yeah. in, week out. But for example, one year I had a personal goal in the friendship area of cutting down friends um which was yeah i mean could be stupid but when i started at movi i realized that one of the pressures in my life came from always feeling or actually hearing from some people in my in in my environment that i don't have enough time for them that i'm never there um so i sat down with all of these people and said look there's two ways either we're going to stop this now in the sense that you're okay with seeing me once a month because i'm focused completely on my company um and i I don't have that much time for all my friends even though i would love to but i don't um or we're just gonna stop, and uh, yeah, I mean, these sort of things are goals. That's that's now probably a negative goal, but in a sense, it was freeing to me, right? Because Absolutely. closing one door opens another one, and that's the sort of things that I then work on.
0: It also gives you the right focus where to focus your time and energy
1: yes, over the next. Yes, and it's not just business, you know. That's yeah. that was always super important to me. That for me to be in a in a space where I can really work. Mm-hmm. I need to have a business goal that motivates me. I need to have a family goal because that's where I come from. I'm in, I see myself as a dad. That's my main thing, right? Then uh, health, sports, friendship, all these things, that's super important. So I'm really, 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 um, that's something that I'm really strict about to have these five goals and to try and, and address it in the way that all of these can be done. Cool. Cool.
0: And something else that is also very interesting is simultaneously to actually founding, growing, and eventually selling Movu, you actually also co-founded HolyCode, your second venture, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's a software company that provides nearshoring services. And I just wonder, why did you actually decide to to build two ventures at the same time? Because one alone is already so stressful and time-consuming. Why would he double that stress and, and time <laughs> investment? Yeah,
1: I think... The answer is relatively clear. I'm just a naive guy. <laughs> 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 um, no, really. In the beginning of Movu, um, Nenat, the, the CTO and co-founder, um, and I we were working with a shrink provider based in London that was uh, working with people in Portugal. And that really didn't work out well. And Nenat told me, look, you're we're a tech company. If we want to be successful, we need a great tech team. We can't afford it in Switzerland um, because we're not a deep tech company. We're not funded like crazy. So we yeah. need to find cheaper ways." Um, and we had his brother Milan, um, who's the director, CEO of Holicon now, who was already helping us freelance at Movu um, from Belgrade. And we visited him, and then we had a few beers, and yeah, sort of decided with a bit of Rakia, hey, let's open up a company here. <laughs> it's gonna be a daughter company of Movu. It'll, it'll be fine. We'll just have our people here. So in three days we opened a company, we hired three people, and we we hi- uh, we rented an office that was way too big. And then we informed our investors that, yeah, we did that. <laughs> I'm sure they were not super happy about that. <laughs> Nicola, the co-founder, was laughing and said, yeah, that's the way to do it. Go, go. Um, and some others were just like, you guys are crazy. What are you doing? Um, and we said, yeah, yeah, but we will integrate it at some point. It just had to be done quickly now. Um, and then over a year, a lot of other startups actually came to us saying, hey, can we also have people there? I'm not happy with my setup, yeah. et cetera. So after a year, we had like 60 people there um, developing um, for at that time, four startups that were growing like crazy. Yeah. Um, Movo was the slowest growing one of them, actually. <laughs> um, uh, so then we went back to our investors and we said, hey, guys, we cannot integrate this company anymore. What we can do is take the Movo people out mm-hmm. and make a daughter company out of that and just leave the rest. Um, but it doesn't make sense. And that was really interesting because at that time, we had venture capitalists that have invested into us. And they said, "Wow, that's fantastic. You're super asset light because you have a model where they're basically your employees. So they feel like they're working for Movu um, and they are. Um, But legally, if next month you have no money anymore, you can just cut them off. Because you just have a contract. And you don't need to take care of all the social parts because that's then the thing that Holy Code in Serbia has to take care of. So yeah, for Nenad and me as founders of both companies, (laughs) the situation didn't change. But as an investor who only focused on Movu, Mm -hmm. it was a great thing for him. So we were quite surprised by that. And then we, we, we decided to professionalize it. Amazing. And
0: how do you actually split your time between the two companies? Did you have like specifically dedicated days that you said today I'm going to work for Movu, the other day I'm going to work for HolyCode, or how did you
1: do that? So in the beginning it was always um, from 8 to 5, let's say every day it was only Movu, Mm -hmm. Um, and from 8 to um, 11 in the evening it was only HolyCode, and all like the times in between was just a bit of wherever it's needed and over time it became a bit more blurry because clients then wanted to have lunch with you so over lunch you made um, something with them but i was always tracking my time and i'm just I'm, i like data yes. <laughs> so um, i was always tracking my time i always made sure that i didn't have less than 50 hours for movu and then it was fine for me um so right. that's how it worked for me
0: were there also some tough trade-offs that you had to make with that setup
1: the main problem was really that we were founders of both companies. So at Movu, that led to so many discussions, you know, not not really with the board. When they made their decision, their professionals, they just said, that's it. Right. But more in the management because, you know, management was also shareholders of Movu. And sometimes they felt like we wanted to have a bigger IT team because that would be good for Holy Code or, you know... Yeah. Th- Sometimes they felt like it would be better to have the people in Switzerland rather than in Serbia. And having them in Serbia, we're only doing because of the founders. And in some points, I think they were actually right. So over time, we decided that UX, for example, we moved it to to Switzerland because it was mm-hmm. better there. Um, uh, so it led to strong discussions there. But I think now, in hindsight, all of us would say that it was actually a really, really good setup and one of the main drivers for our success. Nice.
0: And I also wonder now looking back and reflecting about that, is that a setup that you'd recommend or is that also giving you sort of a certain lack of focus sometimes?
1: No, I would recommend it 100%. You know, a thing that I hear a lot is, um, and that's mainly from Swiss companies, but not only, that I hear a lot is we need to have the people all here. They need to understand the market. They need to yeah. speak the language. They, we need to be able to talk to each other every day. And I think that's, it's, it's, that's not a modern mindset anymore. We live in times where, anyway, half of the company is remote. We live in a globalized world. So if you're really aiming for a super, super successful company, you're probably looking past only Switzerland as a market. So in three years from now, you're going to be working in 20 markets all over the world. So why should all your people be in Switzerland if you're working in all these places, right? You're going to have a multicultural setup anywhere. You want diversity. Um, So I think that's a bit bogus today. Um, And since cash is really like the oxygen for a company and having a New Shore in a in a lower cost country with still very good developers. That's just, I mean, it's a no brainer to me. And I don't know why a lot of people have such an ambiguous mindset about this. Um, But I'm really actively working with people to see why and where it comes from and how to change it.
0: Yeah, You just limit yourself so massively if you want to have everybody here. I mean, of course, cash-wise, but also just talent-wise. You can acquire so much more talent if you open up and don't require them to be here. You'll be stupid
1: not to do that if you're on your own company. Yeah, and in some cases, it might make sense. And for example, what I think, if you have product teams, Mm -hmm. I think it, makes a lot of sense to have them in the market that you're working in right because they need to speak the language most probably they need to understand what they're doing but a tech team so at least the tech teams that I've had the chance to work with they don't want to be too much in contact with the client anyway they want to do True. code they want to yeah. do great code and they really want to build a platform that that they can be proud of and that uh, changes um the lives of people right for the better but the product are the guys that are supposed to make this work with the with the market, with the with the customers, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So I think for that part of your company, it makes a lot of sense to just hire the people where you get the best talent, as I said. Would your assessment change? I mean, now with Holy Code, you
0: had a, a direct positive impact on your business with Movu. So there was this logical synergy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Would your assessment change if you would just run another company that doesn't really have you know, an added value or added benefit to your first company?
1: No. Um, I thought you might ask me, would it change if we would have failed with that setup? <laughs> and then probably yes. Um, but working for a company where you don't have that synergies, I mean, now, for example, I'm doing that, right? I'm at Bexio, I'm the CEO there and they also have um, uh, some of their teams in uh, uh, Poland, uh, Romania and I think also, uh, I, I know also Serbia, but not with Holy Code. And, um, and I still think it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It's somewhat harder to manage a dispersed team like over a lot of different places. Right. Um, but that's that's just a management job. You need to be a good leader. Um, you need to be a good communicator. And then you can do that. And it so outweighs the the, the better cash situation. Makes sense.
0: We're going to also talk about the CEO role at Bexio in a minute. Before we do so, we also want to address your investor part. So you actually also became an investor after exiting Movu. So I think it was in 2017 when he actually became an active investor. You have invested in companies like Points, Yamo, and also CNC Tyler Twenty mm-hmm. Four. So I just wonder why was that
1: a logical next step for you? Why did he actually become an investor? Um, so first of all, probably a lot of people think I made a huge amount of money with Movu. That's not the case. Um, so. I was lucky enough to make enough money that I can become an investor, but not on a huge scale, right? So what I usually invest is um somewhere between a hundred and a hundred fifty thousand, which yeah, I know it's still a lot of money. Cool. But if you compare it to other people that sell companies, probably peanuts. <laughs> um, um so that allowed me to invest into six or seven companies. Currently I'm out of cash, so I'm waiting. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, helping companies to hopefully bring me back some cash in the future. But the main reason I did it was When we started, Dario and some of the other early investors like Stefan Scharer, Peter Hogenkamp, Beat Chilig, and some others, Mm -hmm. they put faith in us. Some of them actually told me, I think your business model is crap, but I believe in you, so you're going to get money from me. And without them, this company would not exist. Simple as that. Um, I hope we proved them wrong with the business model, but (laughs) I don't know how they feel about it. Um, So I wanted to give that back. I really thought like, okay, from the money I made, um, a big portion, I think, Currently, it's 50% of it I reinvest into people that I think they have a bright future. Not necessarily in their business, and I'm not doing a lot of due diligence. I'm really just looking at the, the people in the company and deciding from a gut feeling whether I feel like they they will get a chance anyway, but whether I want to help them yeah. get that chance.
0: I think that's so crucial for the whole Swiss ecosystem. Once you do have an exit that you invested in the next generation, that can really... It can fuel so much and that's so crucial. So thank you for doing that.
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks. It's also for myself. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, Silicon Valley, that's how they became exactly. big because they reinvested the money, the money, the money. And that yeah. you can see it in Berlin happening and in London happening and probably yeah. also in Singapore and some other places. You probably know much better than me. Um, and I think that's something that is crucial in Switzerland to happen more. We had a few, um, really good exits from, from Swiss people that, that are reinvesting it. And I think also in the last two years, I've seen that there's quite a few big, um, big exits or, or soon also some IPOs that are yeah. going to happen that I really hope they will fuel the Swiss ecosystem.
0: I also hope so. So you mentioned you're mainly focused on your gut feeling and the person that you're about to invest in. What do you look for? Is there any, no, not like a due diligence, but any mental checklist that you go through to assess whether you want to invest or not?
1: I mean, from Alexander Stöckel, who was at B2B at that time, I learned a lot about what you should be looking at and the biases. You know, there's like six or seven dimensions that they always check of a company. And you usually have one or two that you're looking at. So I always had the tendency to look at the product and the people. Mm -hmm. Um, Some other people might have just looked at the financials or the legal setup, Um, but if you want to do that i think you need to understand that you have to diversify so you will have to do somewhere between 10 and 20 investments to really diversify enough that your statistical chances of getting the returns right. are high yeah. right i didn't have the money for that also i'm i didn't have the time and um yeah the willingness to invest that much time into do the li- due diligences. so i really just look at the people and that really means to me are we getting along well um when we talk about something, is the discussion actually leading to something or are you losing me or am I losing you on the way? Like, how well do we click? Um, and also, do I feel like they will listen to me? Not in the sense that they just do what I say, but I think sometimes I have valuable inputs and I'd rather not have them go wasted. Um, so that's sort of the things that I look at.
0: Nice. Makes sense. Now, you know, becoming an investor is one part, how the money from the move exit changed your life. What else did he do with the other 50%? Yeah.
1: um, So we were lucky enough and able to buy a house um, and renovate it. Um, Yeah. And then the money's gone. (laughs) No, (laughs) but you know, that's okay. As I said, I'm not really money-driven. Would I have liked to make more money with it? Sure. But... Would I do it differently? No, because at the time I was a new founder, I didn't know what I'm really doing. That was my first venture. Am I done today? No, I have 40 years of, of uh, uh, entrepreneurial career ahead of me. I'm sure I'll, I'll I'll get there. So the money part is nice. Um My goal there was always that I have a house that has no mortgage on it. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm completely out of this system, you know? Nice. And I'm okay. not there yet. So I still have a mortgage. Okay. So I still need to do something. You still have a few more companies to yes. found an exit then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, some work to do. So today you're spending your time as CEO of Bexio. Mias Meyer actually stepped down as CEO in, in 2020. Why did you decide to take on, uh, you know, basically fill his footsteps and take the role as CEO at Bexio?
1: So Jerry and I knew each other from the time before and since we were both, you know, founders of startups um, having the same sort of issues, we exchanged a couple of times and and met. And then um, about the time when I really decided to step down at Movu and communicated that and was thinking about what I'm going to do next, I was approached by a headhunter, uh, whether I would be interested in the role of. CEO. They had to laugh and they called Jerry. I'm like, man, what? You're <laughs> stepping down? And he's like, oh, you're not supposed to know that. Like, yeah, but I was contacted by a headhunter. Oh, you're supposed to, to know then. And uh, <laughs> then I yeah, just talked to him a bit to see how what why the reasons are there that he's leaving. And he was leaving mainly for the same reasons that I was leaving. You know, feeling, I mean, he can talk better about that. So yeah, ask him. Um, and then I lo- started looking at it what i've learned as a founder or what i believed to have learned in the last 10 years okay. can i just come into a company that is quite big that has some things going super well for them and some things going super bad for them like almost every company in that phase right um, and can i change it to the better can i apply what i've learned do i need to learn a lot more where do i stand so for me it was like a let's say a checkpoint in my entrepreneurial career mm-hmm. um so that's why it's that's why it really yeah why it re- really tickled me to take this challenge did you also
0: feel any fear of coming in as the external guy, as a new CEO? Because, you know, the founders like footsteps are pretty big things to fill, right? Because all the employees, they basically followed Jerry's vision. Yeah. Uh, they worked with him for years. W- was there any fear or doubt about that step?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you met Jerry, then you know that he's a super charismatic guy yeah. and uh, he's a fantastic salesperson and soul driven. And yeah, I would love to work with him in the future. Um, so obviously there were a few thoughts for me, for myself, like, are they going to accept me the same way that they that they did him, or yeah, similar. Um, I was not so so nervous since I felt like the main issues or the main challenges at Bexa were more in the tech department, mm-hmm. where I'm stronger probably um, with my background. Right. Probably I'm sure that I'm stronger there. So and they have a super well organized sales and support organization where. They just do an incredibly amazing job. Um, so I knew that from that setup, probably I'll have a good start, right? Um, okay. But yeah, there were some there were some questions for myself, like, can I manage a management team that is um, close to 50 years old? All of them have seen 20, 30 years of experience. Now this young guy comes in and it tells exactly. me, oh, I, I'm, I'm the new CEO and I know what you're doing. So <laughs> yeah, but it worked out really well so far.
0: Do you have any learnings that surprised you or any tips to give away for people that would actually also follow your path and become CEO as the first external person?
1: I mean, I did a good due diligence on the company Um, with Jerry, with the board members. I really went over a lot of the things that Mm -hmm. I think were going well and were going wrong. I think what I didn't do well was to get a commitment of what sort of help I would get, you know? So the board was really supportive so far, but, um, you know, if you need to change something rather big and you need some money for that and these sort of things, I think you should come in with a, with a written um, okay for that. Yeah. I, I sort of got what I needed in the end and it's all good. I get along super well um, with the board, but um, I think it's important to come in with a list of things you will need, you will require from yeah. them, um, because that's the only time you're in the power position. Afterwards, you're not anymore. Right. And I think that I didn't do. Um, that was again a bit naive. It's my, it's my scheme. Um, yeah. But, uh, that's something that I think you should, if you feel like you're in the position to negotiate, make sure that you do that. Not just your salary. I mean, that's, it's, as we said, it's money, but right. about the wiggle room you're going to get, about the possibilities for making decisions that you're going to get. And I think I didn't do that too much mm-hmm. and in the beginning you're in a phase where you don't really know each other so well so the trust level might not be there yet and if you want to do some bold changes you might run into pro- uh, trouble um, it all worked out in the end but I think that would have been an easier way to get there Yeah. I and can. the other thing is don't change things too quickly I, okay. you know there's a lot of these books that say the first 100 days is when you can make change it's, I do not believe that and from what I've seen now I don't think it's it's really true I think you need to make up your mind in mm-hmm. the first 100 days and really figure out what do you want to change and maybe do some of it, but especially things that you want to change culturally, I think you need to give it time because if you come in and you start talking about things like your culture is bad or it's not at so they have a good culture, but if you would sure. do that or um, if you say we need to change this and that, people feel attacked yeah. and you're not going to have open doors and, and a good relationship to work with. So yeah, yeah take it easy. Makes sense.
0: We have one very last question for you for this episode. We of course also wonder if you do have any resources or gadgets that you can recommend to our listeners. Anything that comes to mind in terms of books, blogs, podcasts, or little tools that that make your daily life easier?
1: Sure. Um, books. Um, so my Bible was the startup CEO. That's really I carried that. It's a huge book. I carried it around everywhere uh, in paper form. Um, I think that's really, if you're not a super experienced entrepreneur, so let's say a first time founder, read that book, take it with you. If you're in a situation where you don't know what to do, pick it up and look at the right part of the book. Don't necessarily do what it says, but you know, figure out what they're saying, why they're saying it, how, how it resonates with you and what do you want to do about it. And um, That helped me tremendously. Um, especially for the early stage companies, I think, uh, but that's kind of clear, the lean startup, that's a must. So everybody that joined Movo had to read the book um, so that they understood how we want to go about product innovation. Um, I, I really believe that that's a must. Then zero from one to Peter Thiel, just to get yourself to think big enough. Um, uh, and then the Weg zum erfolgreichen Unternehmer. That's a... Uh, a really nice book from a um from a german person that that helps you also to figure out a system for how you want to run your company
0: nice we actually someone else just recommended the same book so i think people really have to to dig into it now that's yeah, great yeah. <laughs> laurent thank you so much for sharing your impressive journey and story and we can't wait to have you back here for a second episode very soon thank you so much for joining
1: thank you for the talk
2: This episode was brought to you by Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business, the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Managing internal processes manually and on paper wastes an incredible amount of time. That's why Clara digitizes everything, allowing you to focus on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. Again, that's Clara.ch.